Welcome, guys, to Mindset Musings. We've got uh, another feature-length podcast for you guys today, and we are talking to a very well-renowned and well-known person for the music industry. But before we introduce the guest, I'd like to introduce my co-host, Mr. Ben Miles, co-founder of Victorious Festival, one of the largest family festivals in the UK, and that's set across the bank holiday weekend, um, and property investor and just all-round good guy and entrepreneur, Ben Miles. Hello. Thank you, Simon, for your very kind introduction. Yeah, Simon Gardner, co-founder of Carrington West, one of the uh, fastest-growing and best multi-award winning recruitment companies in the United Kingdom. An all-round good guy. Cheers, mate. I love watching you struggle um, <laughs> each week with well, like corporate words that fly out of your um, very... The, the, very the thing is... The thing is... A, okay, yeah, you, you got me. I, I'm not very corporate minded, so I do tend to no. hesitate. But you've just got you got so many you got so many um, superlatives to describe your business, Simon. I, I, I know, just, I know. I just don't know which one to pick. People call me a few names. I'll give you that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no. This week we've got Dave Cronin. Who best but to describe Dave and what he's been up to than, than obviously yourself? Yes, Dave Cronin from the music industry world uh, i met dave uh, about probably about five or six years ago now uh, maybe a touch longer actually uh, dave was managing johnny marr who used to be in the smiths um and when johnny played at victorious back in 2015 i think it was 2016 that's when i first met dave dave is from portsmouth um he left uh, many many years ago late 80s early 90s i think to go and pursue uh, a career in music elsewhere um but he's still got strong roots down in in portsmouth he's got family here and big pompey fan as well which is what we clicked on um so yeah that's that's where i first met dave dave's also worked with a huge range of other artists he's managed we are scientists he's managed ash probably most notably in his career other than working with johnny Marr, he used to work with the beastie boys very closely um grand royale he was very, very high up in the European setup of the record company. Beastie Boys, obviously, a, a huge name in the industry. So, um, yeah, a wealth of experience, a wealth of connections, a wealth of knowledge. Yeah, and it was good to um, catch up with Dave on his uh, on his experiences. All started in the Virgin Records shop as well. Virgin Records, where I didn't get a job, to remind everybody. Uh, everyone seems to have had a job at Virgin Megs Thought, apart from me. Have you ever worked in retail? If you... mm, I did work in in a record in my uncle's record shop. Yeah, secondhand vinyl oh, yeah. shop. Yeah, yeah. I must admit, working in retail, especially this time of year coming up to Christmas, I've got every sympathy. I, I did it for pretty much the back end of maybe the last year of school. I can't remember, um, but certainly into college, it was probably about three, four years in the end at a hardware store. And mate, you know they. They started off as a, I won't name them, but it started off as like an ironmongery place. But obviously over the years, they've added Christmas presents and stuff like that. And it was just, it was just really, really hard. And I do wonder about the, obviously the future of the high street changing and things like that. So it'd be interesting to see, obviously in the run up to Christmas, what it goes like. But um, it's some funny days in that shop. <laughs> there was some funny days. There was actually a rival kind of ironmonger around the corner probably half a mile away sort of thing and I started in 1999 in this particular place and honestly 1999 this other the sort of rival store looked like 
it was about to close down. It, it, it was run by run by like this old, old boy, and uh, you could see, you know, he had like the apron on. It was proper old school, and you know, it, you could tell he was just about to shut. But me and a few mates, and on, on our sort of, you know, people that I hang around with now, you know, Liam and the, these types of people, we we all met in that shop. And uh, if we ever didn't know the answer to something, which was in my case all of the time. <laughs> I got pretty good at batteries in the end, but if I didn't know the answer to something or I didn't know, you know, where something was or in the other case of the other lads, couldn't be asked to go out and get it from the back of the shop. They used to send them around to this, obviously to the rival. Have you tried X, Y, and Z around the corner? Oh yeah, I forgot that guy was there. You know, the shop had been there about 50 years. Right? So by the time I started, it looks like it was about to shut down. Right? By the time I left, it was about to float on the NASDAQ. Right? <laughs> I swear to God, it, it had, mate, they've had, they'd had designers in, store designers. It had, had like this new plastic frontage. The guy hardly worked there. He sort of came in in like this flash car. I'm not saying, you know, maybe he won the lottery. I don't know. But possibly that was the first inkling that, you know, your, your, you know what your efforts or your lack of efforts can do for your competitor. <laughs> so stay switched on, I think, is the message there. <laughs> yeah yeah just 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 go out and get your light bulb from the back and just make sure your customer buys it but um no it was great days and we had we also had like these these sort of uh, recycling bins out of the back and these you know if someone bought a little toaster back with a little scratch on it um it was mad the waste was mad so you'd have to refund it if it wasn't perfect even though it worked and even though you know mrs miggins didn't like the fact that it's a little like sort of you know mark on it or whatever but you weren't allowed to resell it because obviously you've been off site, you don't know what the electrics are like. So, but you weren't allowed to give it away to anyone either. It was actually someone's job, and I did it a few times. You had to get some goggles on, you had to get one of the spray cans, and you had to basically spray the, the, the whatever it was, you know, the plate, the microwave, the whatever. And for good measure, they'd want you to smash it up. So you had to, like, it was a good anger reliever, like, you know, chucking up a two-slice toaster and smashing it with a baseball bat. <laughs> like, it was it was just, like, spread all over the street in the end. But that was the rules. Like, otherwise, people would potentially climb over the fence, hurt themselves, break in. So it was all all in the name of, like, health and safety. But um, you know, that was a decent job to have. Isn't it, isn't, it, isn't it mad the way the world is geared up, especially, you know, modern conversations around waste and protecting the planet and stuff? Uh, and, uh... I don't... Uh, these days, surely that you just wouldn't. I mean, you wouldn't just smash it up a load of metal and stick it in a bin to be removed. Like obviously, there'd be six different bins, and quite rightly so. But there was no tracking of it. Obviously, they wanted the customer more than they wanted the. They've obviously put it down to ratios and stuff. But um, yeah, it was great days. <laughs> Happy <laughs> times. <laughs> hey, honestly, one of the hardest years, probably the hardest job I've ever had. Not not in terms of like taxing on the brain, but just having to put up with people that. You know, the, the, the rudeness, they would come in. Some of them would be so rude, right? So rude. Look you in the eye, look you up and down, and honestly, be really personal about some, like, some abuse or whatever. Then you'd go to, like, the pub next door, or even these days, I still remember the five or six worst ones. They still live locally. You'd, be, you'd go past them in a restaurant, and they're all, you know, with their friends, and I want to walk up to them, and I want to say, do you know what she said to me once? Do you, wanna, do you know what he said to me once? Because they'd be ashamed. I would never speak to a 19 or 18 year old kid like that, but um, <laughs> some people just got off on it. Yeah. But, um, yeah. I'm sure there was a lot of head scratching in the uh, headquarters of said company back in 1999, 2000 as to why sales weren't quite as strong as they should have been. But um, if you're listening in MD of 
ex ironmongery store. Um, he's a very, very well-known entrepreneur nationally. There, there you go. Um, well, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. sure he's. I'm sure he's. Um, really really bothered about the fact his takings in the Portland <laughs> branch weren't what they were 21 years ago anyway really? let's move on to our guest this week Mr Dave Cronin as you know I'm from the recruitment industry so I just wanted to give a quick shout out to our founding sponsors the JSA group their enthusiasm surrounding series two and the launch of series two of this podcast really does demonstrate their commitment to supporting their agency partners with their growth plans and sharing expertise across the industry to raise recruitment standards nationwide. JSA provides a huge range of outsourced payroll solutions to recruitment agencies and contractors and takes away really the pressures of managing their financial requirements. Now, that's whether the contractor wishes to work via limited company, umbrella or PAYE, and their knowledge and passion for evolving the future of recruitment really does run deep. And this is evident in their consistent development of cutting edge services, including international payroll and future proof back office solutions. Now, you can find them by visiting jsagroup.co.uk or across any social media platform at JSA Group. Right, let's get back to it. Dave Cronin, so um, welcome to the Mindset Musings podcast. Thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Yes, yes, indeed. How, how did you get started in the music industry? I blagged my way into it, thankfully. <laughs> I um, I was brought up in Portsmouth. I was brought up in Portchester, actually. I went to Porchester school uh, didn't really get a lot out of it went to Fairham Tech College to sort of try and get some qualifications and was asked to leave um, <laughs> but within within that I met a guy uh, in the Fairham Tech football team who I was very committed to unlike my studies and um, he worked at Virgin Records in Portsmouth in Charlotte Street and uh, we hit it off um, we had similar taste in music and an opportunity came up for a sales assistant in uh, in Virgin in Portsmouth, and he basically talked to me through the interview and said, "This is what you do. This is what you say. This is the music that you're listening to, and leave the rest to me." And I did that. And um, on the fifteenth of October, nineteen eighty four, I started, and I had three years there, and then afterwards, I sort of I joined Rough Trade in nineteen eighty seven. But the starting point was in my home city. I wish I'd known about that Virgin uh, employment tactic a while ago because I actually went for a job at Virgin Megastore when I was uh, in college. And I went and four of my other friends also went for a job. They were hiring a lot of guys to work in Virgin Megastore. And I was the only one out of five that didn't get the job. To be honest, I was actually really disheartened by the whole experience, but I suppose I used it as a positive and learned from it, really. So any future tips you've got for employment? Um, it's all about who you know and your face. That's it. I obviously didn't do with skill. I was a podcast, Ben. <laughs> yeah, I obviously, uh, I obviously didn't know the right skills. So, Dave, who were your idols in music when you were growing up? There are a few. I It's where I'm just reading the sort of Peter Pafidi's broken greek book at the moment we had a sort of similar upbringing sort of music wise i was really into sort of pop music i miss punk because i was too young for punk but two-tone was my punk so like 79 onwards with the specials and madness and the beat and body snatchers so my sort of one of the first heroes was probably jerry dammers for what he did for two-tone and then madness i was i was more madness than specials i love the specials but madness were my band 
and then that led to stiff records I sort of became obsessive about stiff records and you know Dave Robinson uh, especially as sort of the, you know the guru there and then that sort of led on to the damned and the damned probably the naffest punk band but for me I love the damned uh, you know I was I was sort of a clash fan I saw the clash a few times but not as much as the damned so they were sort of my early early sort of heroes and and then outside of that there was football you know Pompey we didn't have many heroes at that time uh, I was when I was growing up I was a bit of a Chelsea fan as well and like sort of Ray Wilkins was sort of a hero but it was more music and uh, and those sort of early days the, the two-tone the madness the stiff record setup they were sort of my inspiration really to to sort of try and get involved in the industry from there you went into the management side which artists have you managed well the, sort of the management was a bit of a long trek i i went from three years at virgin and we had this rule at virgin where once you'd done your three years and you wanted to punch every customer and you needed to get out of retail um <laughs> and then i fortunately i got asked to join rough trade um so i joined rough trade at the end of the 80s and that's when i moved out of portsmouth you know i still call portsmouth my home city but i moved out in 87 so I moved up north to do a bit of training at Rough Trade. I got promoted and moved back down to London. And I had sort of various jobs. I became sales manager. I think I was the youngest sales manager for a record company at the time when I was sales manager at Rough Trade. Uh, moved to Brussels for a few years and set up an international department there. Came back to the UK, worked with the Beastie Boys for four years between sort of London and LA and New York while their Hello Nasty tour was going on. And once I'd done that, then Mike from Beasties suggested to me I go into management. So I started up my own management company in 2003. Um, and we've worked with, you know, it was just me at first, and then I had a, a business partner called Nigel Templeman, and we worked together for years, many, many years. And we worked with the likes of Dexies, a band called Splash, Howler, Ash, we are scientists. And then when I went on my own, I managed uh, Johnny Marr uh, and Baxter Jury and a sort of few other acts. But one time we were probably managing seven or eight bands in our sort of mid-sized management setup. And it was it was always quite busy. So I would say some bigger artists to say Johnny was probably the biggest and the most time consuming. And like, you know, Ash and we are scientists um, were, you know, when they're on on album campaign on touring that took up a lot of time but mainly indie a little bit of electronic we're looking after fuck buttons and blank mass which was a side project of um of buttons but yeah mainly indie a little bit electronic really is my long-winded answer to that question that's a, that's a pretty uh, pretty good cv dave how did you deal with the pressure of managing the artists and also fans expectations for example the band or the artist need you to help them achieve and, and strive to grow and also fans they're expecting good output whether that's recorded material or touring so you, you're you're juggling a lot of lot of different things there how, how do you deal with the pressure of making sure you get those things right well there's two types of pressure when you work with johnny i never said that i managed johnny like i it was always you represent johnny because johnny's an ideas person you know he always has been he's been hands-on you know right from the start with the smiths and i was lucky enough to know johnny 10 years before we started working together on the management side so we knew how each other sort of worked and i didn't 
really sort of expect I never even though I was a manager and he was an artist I never thought I'd be end up managing him you know we just became running buddies and we'd sort of share ideas so with Johnny it was putting his ideas into interaction really uh the live album the adrenaline baby live album the record store day single four I feel you and then Johnny gives me the credit for the autobiography because we talked about it uh, on a promo trip in the beginning of the sort of 2000s so with that there's it's just putting everything into action but with the with the other bands um with the development bands it's putting a strategy together of recording finding a label finding an agent finding a publisher finding a promoter building a website doing all the many roles that managers are meant to do nowadays so it depends on the it's always on a case-by-case basis and then and then from the from the consumer point of view from the fan point of view it's keeping visible and having consistent releases and when you do go away you've still got to have contact just sort of remind people that you're still here and I think we did that well with Johnny when I finished the Playland campaign and the, the the live album campaign. He went straight into the autobiography and that took probably a year, a year and a half. So there was visibility there. And then with, you know, with other bands, you know, with Ash and We Are Scientists, like to keep on touring as much as possible, try and do the sort of festival circuits just to sort of keep the brand profile going and the money coming in as well. And just making sure that there's interaction with the fans at the end of the day so they feel part of the band and, uh, you know, and giving them the information of when tickets were on sale, when albums were being pre-sold. The pressures of it, it it's a 24-7 job. I, I had a masterclass with someone the other day and he said it's not a 24-7 job, it's a 25-8 job. And I, I agree with that. It's There's very little downtime, especially if you're managing artists in different parts of the world or if they're touring different parts of the world, you're you're on their sort of time clock at the end of the day. So yeah, it's, it's juggling, it's looking at everything by a case to pay case basis. And then when you do have downtime, don't look for something to do, enjoy that downtime um, because it's gonna start getting busy again. And that's probably one of the mistakes I made where I'd always try to keep busy and, and wouldn't sort of check in with myself or my family at the end of the day. Yeah, that, that's some really, really sound advice. Something that I I can echo. I'm sure Simon can as well. Is make sure you enjoy the, the downtime because what you said there about not being able to switch off 24-7, 25-8, as you put it, is that that will ring true with, with everyone that's an entrepreneur or you know business owner. Um, so I think managing your time and making sure you do recharge, as it were, is, is um, definitely an important thing. Uh, how do you see the effect... Uh, on mental health within the music industry uh, I mean I work in the industry myself as well and I've been I've toured when I was younger it's from my experience it can be very tiring uh, especially if you're out touring uh, you mentioned about time to switch off which is very important some people just really find that hard it's a very fast mm. pace of life how do you how do you see the effect on mental health of people that work within the industry and and do you see any positive ways that people can can you know help themselves yeah it's 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 rife mental health in management i'm back in management now at the moment and but i you know my in my other world i i'm in higher education and we get a lot of well-being issues in higher education because students haven't been able to sort of interact and it's the same with musicians but not just musicians like crew and all aspects of the industry you know the past 12 months has really had an effect on people and 
but before that as well you know being on the road it's grueling we have this sort of story that we laugh about when you come off road for a, a couple of months and you go to the fridge and get a bottle of milk and you expect a round of applause for it because you know people have been sort of you know, everything you've done over the past previous two months you know it's been under the spotlight and that's hard to adjust to being again being away from family you've got temptations on the road whether it's physical contact or drink related or chemical related you've got to be on top of it and you know as a manager you have to observe and help you know I've, I've worked with a lot of bands who have had problems on the road or problems in life in general and you've got to be the counsellor at the end of the day which is dangerous if you're if you're not if you're not trained you've just got to make sure you give them the right advice or the right help and on the road the tour manager the tour manager is is key to making sure that everyone's everyone's safe and then at the end of the day you've got to check that the tour manager's okay then you're okay so that you can give the round sound advice really so it's rife but there you know the positives are there's organizations like help musicians many sort of charities who are aware they're not just helping musicians at the moment they're helping sort of crew and stuff like that so it's easy to speak about it and I think it's easy to get help. It's interesting to read that obviously you're you're teetotal now and you're vegan and well into running and things like that um obviously completely different scale but the alcohol and the bits and bobs in in, in the music industry do you do you see that's an important step to to really owning one's mindset and one's mental health to to stop drinking for a while i mean j- just on that i you know i work in a sales environment sort of co-founded a recruitment company it is a social environment and there are you know client mm. meetings etc etc i always tend to use it as my secret weapon if i've got you know if i, if I want to make an investment or i've got a i've got a house to buy or, or I've, I've got a large decision to make i make sure for for six to eight weeks i'm, I'm not drinking at all and i'm complete yeah. clarity is that is that kind of how you've decided to go yeah, I just think I got a little bit bored with it or bored with myself being a bit of a dick, really. Um, and that didn't help. I always made sure that when I was managing, I was never drunk in front of the band. You know, there's probably one or two occasions when we really all let our hair down where it's acceptable. But I think this is one of the things working with Johnny. Like Johnny has been teetotal for probably five years longer than me. So... I I toyed with the idea. I do the dry January every year, but then one year, I just thought, you know, I said to my my wife at the time, it's uh, I said like I'm going to make this I'm going to make this permanent. I, I think I can make it work. I don't miss it, and and I think it's been the best decision of my life. Yeah, and I, I think I'm into well. The last time I drank was the day that Pompey won the FA Cup on May seventeenth, wow. two thousand and eight, and you know after getting drunk and walking through my dinner then that that was it and it is the best decision I've made in my life because just and with the running and with the diet as well you know I know I see Ben's Instagram posts every morning he gets up at shit o'clock like me and and it's great because it's quiet you set yourself up mentally for the day you know what you're going to be doing you know anyone you know all three of us need to work on our time management and, and know exactly what we're doing during the day and and that's really important but to not have three day hangovers and not to feel crap because of a sort of a a big night out and then to sort of go out and run or walk I don't think there's any other way to to run a professional business to be honest 
Yeah, it's an interesting take. And uh, like, for instance, my wife, uh, she also gave up drinking about five years ago. And, you know, there's no looking back for her. She feels she feels a lot better. But I mean, not to completely disown alcohol or, or, you know, pubs and music venues. You know, I I do own a pub and so does Simon. Do you see, I mean, I because I certainly do. Do you still see, though, even though you don't drink alcohol, the, the, the pub as a community hub uh where people it's vital for people to go and socialize and interact with each other yeah 100 percent. i think pubs are vital and like i i don't you know i give the self-righteous look to people when they've got their hungover because it's hilarious (laughs) but i i go to pubs and then i frequent your bars when i'm in the beautiful city but yeah i think it's really important You you know i've had people around me who can treat alcohol socially rather than in a binge manner and I love it. You know, I, you know, I like going to the pub. I talk, I like talking to people. I, I love having an engaging conversation with people about anything, but when it gets to the point where people are getting drunk, which is absolutely fine. I'll, I'll do my French exit and go, whether it's I'm out on the road and the bands will, you know, do what they want to do. And I'll just go back to the hotel or, you know, I will just disappear because people, I know the next day, Oh, what time did you go? Because I know that my work there is done and um, they, they won't remember anything else I've said after that point. Yeah, I think it's, it's a good way of looking at it. And for me, uh, relationship with alcohol, it, it's it's all about balance, like you say. Yeah. Uh, binging, uh, it kind of leads on to my point, in, when, you, when you're on tour, excessive alcohol consumption kind of goes hand in hand with the, the whole image. But I think if you can strike a good balance, it, it's definitely got uh, its benefits for, for socialising. So just to move on, uh, we'll come on to the good bits in a in a minute, but most people in their career have suffered low moments, and often low moments are the catalyst which then propel that person onto a different path, which leads to success. Have you? Can you identify the lowest point in your career where maybe you were questioning yourself or doubting yourself, and did you use that situation to your advantage? Yeah, that is a, it's a great question. Um, no one's ever asked me that before. I would say I've never doubted myself. I've been always been, sort of been quite cocky. Um, and I think that's the Pompey boy in me. And when I'm at a low point, I question it and I assess it. And I, I look for, you know, a new strategy or new options. I'm actually sort of doing that in my life at the moment, you know, even though I'm 54 now, and I'm sure we get onto that in a bit. But low points, yeah, it's really, I think the low points for me, unfortunately, you know, I've worked with artists who I've lost. And in higher education, you know, I've, I, you know, I lost a student a couple of years ago. And that is, I've, you know, I've, I made a, a pact with myself. I never wanted to bury an artist ever again. or I never wanted to bury a student ever again. And it's, you know, it's, it's really hard hitting. But, you know, you do sit down and think again like where do I go from here like where do I rebuild there's been a lot of stuff in my personal life where probably more in my personal life rather than my career where I've been at a low point and I've had to start all over again and um and there are positives to take from it but it's being when you're at a low point that's where you need the support that's where you need your mates and your family and little things like you know you Ben you know we we text each other and stuff like that and we sort of check in same with with Ashley Brown like we we do it and it's really important to do that and and to sort of get the perspective of someone else so there's always you know everyone's had low points in their career little things when um 
when Yauk died from beasties, that was that was tough because he was just a wonderful human being. And because it's in the spotlight, you you sort of you're, you're more drawn towards it and you can't sort of grieve on your own. You know, you've got to grieve in public, really. So, yeah, there's it, it's tough, but you do you look for support and you sort of you look for a strategy to take yourself out of it, really. Yeah, it's important to um, to persevere and move ahead, I think. On that note, though, what would you say uh, has been the pinnacle of your career? You may not have even achieved that yet. We don't know. But to date, what would you say has been the pinnacle, the, the high point? Being involved in Victorious Festival, of course. <laughs> Checks um, in the post, Dave. Thank you. I would say there's various, I think having... Being involved in my first number one single, which was Mars Pump Up the Volume, just from a telesales point of view, I was just doing telesales at Rough Trade at the time, but to actually do that, and we had plenty of number one singles after that, and number one albums, you know, we were working with the Smiths and Depeche Mode and Erasure and the Sundays and Carter and stuff like that, and that that was really good, but it was always, it felt one step away because we were the distributors, so we, we weren't really involved. But I think for the Beasties, like, I've known well there's that word serendipity being in the right place at the right time I was drunk in Belgium one night and I bumped into Natalie and Mike who were going around Europe trying to find someone to to run Grand Royal and and they were returning home because they hadn't found anyone and they they found a drunk me in a bar in Belgium and, and offered me the job um so the beasties opened up so many doors to me because we you know, we had a number one album, you know, arguably the biggest out, a biggest band in the world at the time. You know, we were playing in the round all over. Well, I say I always say we, the collective we. I did nothing at all, you know. I was part of the Grand Royal family, but yeah, so that opened up a lot of doors and just like spooky things, like working with. I've I've met the Dalai Lama so many times now. Um, through the Beastie Boys, we did the free Tibet shows. Um, then we had an opportunity to sort of meet and uh, working with Johnny, and then. Because of that, I've I've sort of done some more work for the Free Tibet cause. And that's always spooky. I, when I first the first time I met the, the Dalai Lama was backstage at Wembley and I walked into the Beasties dressing room and he was sitting there alongside Christine and Debbie Harry, Harry from Blondie. And it was like, this is the most <laughs> surreal moment of my life. So I I did what normally good boys do and I ran out and phoned my mum and then so there's been stuff like that. And I, I would say the one thing that, that keeps coming back to is when Beasties headline Reading in 98 and uh, we had all the trouble with the Prodigy at the time. We had, it kicked off between Prodigy and, and that. And it was a bit of a dampener at first, but it, the Beasties always do sabotage as the encore and, and Money Mark sort of put me onto the side of the stage and plopped me behind the keyboards to see... I don't know, 60, 70,000 people at Reading going completely mad. And you look at it and you just think, yeah, I, you know, I'm probably never going to beat this. So I've been lucky to have a lot of highs. And, you know, and, the, you know, with like seeing things at Victorious as well, there's spine tingling stuff that's happened at Victorious, which I'm privileged to be involved in. So, you know, it still goes on now. You know, it's I'm, I'm a very lucky person. Yeah, no, that's interesting you say that there is one thing I can think of off the top of my head re victorious related which you can probably elaborate on a little bit better but we had a, a blinding year 2019 year before Covid had to get mm. my math right then um, when we had 
a great lineup on the castle stage which for the listeners listening dave is the production manager for me for the castle stage he runs that area along with stage manager chris they do a great job and our bookers uh, andy my partner uh, had booked uh, along with our booking agent had booked lewis capaldi earlier that year uh, and at the time nobody really knew who who he was in the mainstream and uh, over the course of the following uh, eight or nine months his profile just went stratospheric anyone who saw him on instagram and you know the radio play was just crazy so his profile went huge and to be you know fair to him carried on with our show and they honored the slot and we had a really good run-up on that stage um with professor green mm. was on before and the arena was yeah oh, well dave you can probably explain it better but it was absolutely jam-packed people on top of people um, yeah you know it was huge but the the atmosphere was i'll try and explain this to somebody uh, and i had a discussion with someone the other day about the buzz you get from working in live events uh, and the music industry you, it's you cannot replicate it when you get special moments like that when everything seems to come together you're right the the lewis capaldi thing it was like we knew it was going to be special you know when we got on site in in the morning can't even remember who we had headlining that day. It might have been Block Party. It was Block Party, yeah, and Hives yeah. were after. After. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So that that run up. So it went. I think it went Pro Green, Capaldi, Hives, and Block Party, and it was like you couldn't ask for a better lineup. And you know, different different sort of genres. The the thing, the way that that day started is we knew it was going to be a busy day, and even with Professor Green, we. We had a lot of people there, and uh, I think we had about twenty-five thousand for uh, for Pro Green, and just the reaction from him was quite incredible. You know, he said to said to us, Ben, I think you were there as well, where he was sort of coming down the ramp and just saying, "That's the best gig I've ever done," and he said, "You know, I did Glastonbury a couple of years ago. That is the best show I've ever done." And I thought everyone was there just to see Lewis, and they're not. They were there to see me, and they were, uh, you know, they were singing away, and you know, and Paul Windsor. Mr. One Shot a Minute managed to get the front cover of the evening news from the Pro Green thing. And, and it was really special. So that was that was a privilege. And, you know, they got they got the champagne out and we were sort of taking the piss a little bit, going, oh, you know, lardy da. And you know, he was going, oh, you know, I never I never celebrate, you know, but you know, this is this is it. So we knew that something was happening. And then when Lewis sort of came on and we had to sort of bring in all the extra security just to get to people on the arena like you know some being diverted to the left some being diverted to the right so it it was it was jam-packed if anyone sees the photos from Lewis Capaldi it, it was like right up to the to the bank up to the wall there, there wasn't a gap anywhere and and I think the police I, I might be wrong here Ben but the police said there was uh, you know up to 40,000 there for it um but we all like a bit of an exaggeration and and that was it. You know, the timing was right. It was it was early evening. He played a great set, and he delivered. And just say we will we will talk about that for the rest uh, the rest of our lives because it was just you had to be there type moments really. And I think that's the beauty of Victorious, where if it's our stage or the other stage, then um, <laughs> you'll you'll have you'll have magical moments like that, and and people will cherish it. You know, not just me and the sort of the crew who were there, but the punters who just saw something special that day yeah it was it was a fantastic moment i think from memory as well we did also lose someone who'd scaled the top of a portaloo to try and get a better <laughs> vista and um yeah. disappeared through the through the roof of it 
Um, yeah. I was, so, I was, yeah, I was going to say, actually, my brother runs the security company that, that covers Victorious. So he might disagree with the 40,000 capacity there. I think he, <laughs> think he thinks it's closer to sort of 20 to 25 uh, as legal requirements would dictate. Yeah, you can edit that bit out. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. So Dave, on the note of talking about that electric moment we both shared together at Victorious, can you name any other gigs or concerts or festivals where you've had similar experience uh, in your years of being in the industry? Yeah, the one that springs to mind is, again, working with Johnny, where we were on the Playland tour in possibly 2015. This is the UK part of it. And we'd done, I can't remember where we'd been. I think we'd been to, oh, yeah, I know where we'd been. We'd done Brixton Academy on the Thursday. We did Bath on the Friday, which is extremely violent for some reason. And it must have been all the rugger buggers. And then on the Saturday, we got the, the tour bus left Bath after the show and we went up to Manchester and Joe's manager, co-manager who I work with, Joe Moss, who famously encouraged Johnny to knock on Morrissey's door and start the Smiths. Um, Joe was, was ill, like terminally ill. And just before he passed away, probably almost exactly a year until he passed away, he got married to his, his partner we all went up to Manchester, up to Stockport. The tour bus rocked up outside the Apollo. We all sort of got into cabs, you know, all put suits on them and went to the, the wedding ceremony with, with Joe. And then Johnny treated the, the live show that night as the reception. And, he, and there's a clip on YouTube, if you go to it, where he, he's telling the crowd, you know, obviously a sellout crowd, you know, it's a special day and Joe and Sarah have got married. And, and you know, the first... The first song, their first dance is There is a Light That Never Goes Out. And I think, you know, just speaking about it now, it's sort of, again, just the sort of the thrill sort of going up my back, you know, sort of the hairs on end. Uh, it's just a magical moment because, like, Joe was so happy. That was the last time Joe saw Johnny play as well. So it's sort of very sort of poignant. But it's what I was saying earlier, when you get the privilege to be involved in stuff like that and see it, all around the world it's it's great but I think that one stands out for me because it ticks a lot of the emotional boxes really yes the one thing I find really hard to get my point across to people to articulate uh, and I mentioned it a minute ago when we were talking is just the 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 real buzz you can get from an experience uh, in the live events industry it's, it's just you you kind of yeah, you have to be there to to see it and believe it, really. But it really is really is special at times. Just to, almost wrapping up now. Simon's got a question for you to to finish up with. But have you got any funny tour stories you can share with the audience? Because <laughs> so, I, I get I asked this, I get asked this question a lot, and I can't really repeat many of them. Yeah, well, so. that's the thing. I can't <laughs> I can't say the majority of them. But, but you know, they they're just. I think the sort of my cop out answer is is like just when you're when you're sort of Trev. Oh, actually, no. There's a really good one. Actually, there's a Joe Joe Strummer one. When we did um, the Free Tibet concert, we did four on the same day because we're mad, and I had to do the one in Amsterdam. And we had I think we had Blur, Radiohead, Alanis Morissette, Garbage. Um, you know, everyone dropped everything that they were doing to play for us, and Joe Strummer turned up. And I'd met Joe once before at Ports of Guildhall. I worked briefly at Ports of Guildhall 
before they realised that I wasn't actually working. I was ligging with the, the sort of people we were playing. So I met him briefly there, but then I was I had to look after Joe for a couple of hours and we did a sort of press conference together uh, and then he did a bit of media and then we went back to his dressing room in this arena somewhere in Amsterdam and he went, oh, Dave, he went, um, thanks for you know, this room and, you know, and, and everything. I said, that's all right. He said, have you noticed anything? I said, no, no, what, what, what have I missed, Joe? He said, this room hasn't got a ceiling. It's just sort of partitioned off. I went, yeah, yeah. He said, um, so... He said, can you see what, what that is over there? I was like, Mark, what, what are you on about, Joe? He said, it's a bowl of fruit. I'm like, yeah, yeah, no, that's part of your idea, you know, just to say thanks and look after you. He said, yeah, but I'm going to throw fruit now and I'm going to throw it at all the other bands around me, like, you know, Blur and Radiohead and, <laughs> and things like that. And for five minutes, I was just watching Joe Strummer throw fruits from backstage at the whatever arena it was in Amsterdam into Radiohead and Garbages <laughs> and Blurs and Alanis's into their bits. And, and, he, and he just looked really, really happy. And, uh, <laughs> and, and it was just like, it was a magical moment. And again, you know, the Clash and Joe have such an importance to people in Portsmouth, you know, with Perry and, and, and all that lot. And for me to sort of have that experience with, with him was, you know, I, again, I'll take that to the grave with me. I'd love to see Tom York get hit in the face with a tangerine. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> me too. Very <laughs> sorry. Yeah, just, just a couple from me. I, I mean, having read and listened to a couple of interviews in the last couple of days, Dave, you, you, this in the right place at the right time theme sort of seems to come up quite a bit. It, it, do, you, do you truly believe that or is that just your sort of modest side coming out? I just, I, do, I really do believe it. I just think, there's a, a phrase that Johnny uses of me is like, the harder I work, the luckier I get. So there's there's a work ethic to it. But I, I do believe, you know, when at, at Virgin, you know, we were just, we had such a laugh, you know, there wasn't really a work ethic there. We'd turn up hungover at nine o'clock and leave at five and be in the pub by one minute past five. But at Rough Trade, it really was a case of, well, when I got promoted, I was only doing telesales for a year and this position came up and I I applied for it and no one else applied for it. And I was like, well, this is mad. So I got the job and, and it's always been, you know, when I was talking about sort of how I got the Beasties job, I was drunk in a hotel in Brussels and you can't, you know, you, you can't budget for that. So there is a lot of serendipity there, but I, I do think you make your own luck as well. You know, I, I'm probably a little bit, sort of modest about it but you know I have worked hard I've always sort of given it all to the jobs whether it's sort of in the you know in the music industry or in higher education now I, I try and give it my all but there is there is a I do believe just being in the right place at the right time and and you just can't predict what's going to happen really yeah. I really uh, I really agree with you on the harder I work the luckier I get um, mantra because it's something that really grates on me when people see successful people and they just assume it's been handed to them. They, you know, some, it's like they were almost sat on their sofa at home. Someone's knocked on the front door and said, Oh, by the way, we've got this golden opportunity. It's going to make you loads of money. You don't have to do any work. Um, you know, it just really doesn't exist like that. And right. I believe that you, you do earn your own luck. Yes. You have to be lucky when you're starting a business or starting a venture, but like you say, it's only because you apply yourself and you put yourself in those situations. And that's, the same for you you know you you, you applied yourself in, in the music scene and you networked and you made your contacts and then that's that's how you kind of blossom yeah 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 and no, I totally agree I mean yeah just I mean just on that Ben you know it, I mean for me it's 
I mean, it's a bit of a cliche, but, you know, it's where sort of hard work meets kind of, you know, preparation, if you like, if you're, if you're prepared and you're working hard and, and that opportunity comes along and they, and they come along for most people, you know, even people that moan that they've got bad luck and they, you know, if you actually analyze it, they've had opportunities, they've mm. just not even seen them or, or, or been ready for them. I mean, just on the lecturing piece there, you, you, you sort of mentioned at the top there, it's, it's, it's kind of starting to wrap up and, you, and you're going into kind of management again. I mean, is, is that the direction you're looking to, to kind of go in for the future? Yeah, I think so. I, I, I didn't miss management when I left because I, I felt a little bit burnt out and I'd been literally touring the world on and off with artists and and sort of doing business for our management company. And, and it was nice to actually sort of be back in the UK. I vowed to never go to go on a plane ever again. And, and I think I've only been on one plane over the past four years, which I'm quite proud of, but that's obviously that's got to change. It can't change now, obviously. But I went into higher education and I managed to sort of work at, a, I'm, you know, I'm doing it now. I, I, I work at an education provider that gives some honors degrees um, for the music industry. So it's very sort of specialist and, it's again it's been a privilege to work with the students to see some amazing students come through and sort of see them go into the industry but it's got to the point now where I think again I'm a little bit burnt out it's been tough especially through Covid to to try and deliver lectures online on on Zoom on the format that we're on now like face to face I've 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 sort of lost that edge a little bit I think and but I think I found a gap in the market where um students who who leave any higher education place you know not just acm where i work but you know whether it's our competitors or or universities there's not really a lot of help that they get once they've graduated when they're sort of postgrad so i'm starting up a, a management mentoring company where i'm going to take six people not necessarily sort of grads or anything but you know people from different sort of backgrounds and diversity diverse backgrounds and upbringing to give them the opportunity to train them and mentor them for a year starting up their own company trying to get money for them to contribute to their living costs and just to give them a year where they can get match fit before they sort of go into the industry on their own and so I've been doing a lot of work with Microsoft over the past couple of years, and they've been really supportive of the idea, looking at the business, uh, you know, the, the business plan, the summary, and just giving me the confidence to do it. Uh, I'm just in the rounds of do, raising the funds for it at the moment. Um, we can go three different directions. I'm trading off goodwill rather than a hard-ass business plan because I don't think I can bring up a, a hard-ass business plan for something like this at the moment. So. I am going to the industry uh, for support on it. And I started in September. I leave my job in, in April. Um, I've got a few months to set it up. And I'm really excited about it because I want to, I don't really want to manage anymore. You know, I'm working with two amazing bands. I'm working with Wesley Gonzalez and I'm working with a band from Leeds called Mush, who recently had a, an album out. And I love doing that, but I'd like to mentor young people and show them how to structure show them where the income streams are, show them how to network, how to, to get mentorship. And I think I'll get a lot more job satisfaction out of that. So that's the next step, you know, so late in my career, I thought I'd be in HE for the rest of my life, but I've got one more sort of chance at it. And I'm speaking some, to some amazing people who want to help me out. So that's, that's the, the next step of the, the journey, really, I'd say. Yeah, that's really exciting to hear your, your future plans coming together there unfortunately we're gonna to have to wrap the interview up there because we've run out of time but just want to say 
Dave Cronin, thanks very much for joining us on the Mindset Musings podcast this week. 